I think we could feel how congregations around the world joined us in this wonderful musical petition, God bless our prophet dear. Recently, as we met with President Thomas Monson, he expressed with great solemnity and a countenance of happiness how much he loves the Lord and that he knows that the Lord loves him. My dear brothers and sisters, I know that President Monson is very grateful for your love, your prayers, and your dedication to the Lord and his great gospel. My dear friends, nearly a century ago, a family from Oregon was vacationing in Indiana, over 2,000 miles away, when they lost their beloved dog, Bobby. The frantic family searched for the dog everywhere, but to no avail. Bobby could not be found. Heartbroken, they made the trip home, each mile taking them farther away from their cherished pet. Six months later, the family was stunned to find Bobby on their doorstep in Oregon. Mangy, scrawny, feet worn to the bone, he appeared to have walked the entire distance by himself. Bobby's story captured the imagination of people across the United States and he became known as Bobby the Wonder Dog. Bobby is not the only animal who baffled scientists with an amazing sense of direction and instinct for home. Some monarch butterfly populations migrate 3,000 miles each year to climbs better suited for their survival. Leatherback turtles travel across the Pacific Ocean from Indonesia to the coast of California. Humpback whales swim from the cold waters of the North Pole and South Poles toward the equator and back. Perhaps even more incredibly, the Arctic tern flies from the Arctic Circle to Antarctica and back every year, some 60,000 miles. When scientists study this fascinating behavior, they ask questions such as, how do they know where to go? And how does each successive generation learn this behavior? When I read of this powerful instinct in animals, I can't help but wonder, is it possible that human beings have a similar yearning, an inner guidance system, if you will, that draws them to their heavenly home? I believe that every man, woman, and child has felt the call of heaven at some point in his or her life. Deep within us is a longing to somehow reach past the veil and embrace heavenly parents we once knew and cherished. Some might suppress this yearning and deaden their souls to its call. But those who do not 
quench this light within themselves can embark on an incredible journey, a wondrous migration towards heavenly climes. The sublime message of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that God is our Father, that He cares about us, and that there is a way to return to Him. God calls to you. God knows your every thought, your sorrows, and your greatest hopes. God knows the many times you have sought Him, the many times you have felt limitless joy, and the many times you have wept in loneliness, the many times you have felt helpless, confused, or angry. Yet, no matter your history, if you have faltered, failed, feel broken, bitter, betrayed, or beaten, know that you are not alone. God still calls to you. The Savior extends his hand to you. And as he did to those fishermen who stood long ago on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, with infinite love, he speaks to you, Come, follow me. If you will hear him, he will speak to you this very day. When you walk the path of discipleship, when you move toward Heavenly Father, there is something within you that will confirm that you have heard the call of the Savior and set your heart toward the light. It will tell you that you are on the right path and that you are returning home. Since the beginning of time, God's prophets have urged the people of their day to hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, keep his commandments and his statutes, and turn unto him with all thine heart and with all thy soul. The scriptures teach us a thousand reasons why we should do this. Today, let me offer two reasons why we should turn to the Lord. First, your life will be better. Second, God will use you to make the lives of others better. I testify that when we embark upon our con- or continue the incredible journey that leads to God, our lives will be better. This does not mean that our lives will be free from sorrow. We all know of faithful followers of Christ who suffer tragedy and injustice. Jesus Christ himself suffered more than anyone else. Just as God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, he also allows adversity to test the just and the unjust. In fact, sometimes it seems that our lives are more difficult 
because we are trying to live our faith. No, following the Savior will not remove all of our trials. However, it will remove the barriers between you and the help your Heavenly Father wants to give you. God will be with you. He will direct your steps. He will walk beside you and even carry you when your need is greatest. You will experience the sublime fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith. These spiritual fruits are not a product of temporal prosperity, success, or good fortune. They come from following the Savior, and they can be our faithful attendants even in the midst of the darkest storms. The fires and tumults of mortal life may threaten and frighten, but those who incline their hearts to God will be encircled by His peace. Their joy will not be diminished. They will not be abandoned or forgotten. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, the scriptures teach, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Those who heed the inner call and seek God, those who pray, believe, and walk the path the Savior has prepared, even if they stumble along the path at times, receive the consoling assurance that all things shall work together for their good. For God gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. And the Lord, in his goodness, asks, Do you want to experience abiding joy? Do you yearn to feel within your heart the peace that passes understanding? Then turn your soul toward the light. Begin your own wonderful journey home. As you do so, your life will be better, happier, and more purposeful. On your journey back to Heavenly Father, you will soon realize that this journey isn't just about focusing on your own life. No, this path inevitably leads you to become a blessing in the lives of God's other children, your brothers and sisters. And the interesting thing about the journey is that as you serve God and as you care for and help your fellow men, you will see great progress in your own life in ways you could never imagine. Perhaps you don't consider yourself all that useful. Perhaps you don't consider yourself a blessing in somebody's life. Often when we look at ourselves, we see only our limitations and deficiencies. We might think we have to be more of something 
for God to use us, more intelligent, more wealthy, more charismatic, more talented, more spiritual. Blessings will come not so much because of our abilities, but because of our choices. And the God of the universe will work within and through you, magnifying your humble efforts for His purposes. His work has always advanced on this important principle. Out of small things proceedeth that which is great. When writing to the saints in Corinth, Paul the Apostle observed that not many of them would be considered wise by worldly standards. But that didn't matter because God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The history of God's work is filled with people who consider themselves inadequate, but they humbly served, relying on the grace of God and His promise. Their arm shall be my arm, and I will be their shield. And they shall fight manfully for me, and I will preserve them. This uh, past summer, our family had a wonderful opportunity to visit some early church history sites in the eastern United States. In a special way, we relived the history of that time. People I had read so much about, people like Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and Thomas B. Marsh, became more real to me as we walked where they walked and pondered the sacrifices they made to build the kingdom of God. They had many great traits that allowed them to make significant contributions to the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ. But they were also human, weak, and fallible, just as you and I are. Some found themselves at variance with the prophet Joseph Smith and fell away from the Church. Later, many of the same people had a change of heart, humbled themselves, and once again sought and found fellowship with the saints. We might have a tendency to judge these brethren and other members like them. We might say, I would never have abandoned the prophet Joseph. While that may be true, we don't really know what it was like to live in that time, in those circumstances. No, they were not perfect. But how encouraging it is to know that God was able to use them anyway. He knew their strengths and weaknesses, and He gave them the extraordinary opportunity to contribute a verse or a melody to the glorious anthem of the Restoration. How encouraging it is to know, though we are imperfect, if our hearts are turned to God, He will be generous and kind 
and use us for his purposes. Those who love and serve God and fellow man and humbly and actively participate in his work will see wondrous things happen in their lives and in the lives of those they love. Doors that seem shut will open. Angels will go before them and prepare the way. No matter your position in your, in your community or in the church, God will use you if you are willing. He will magnify your righteous desires and turn the compassionate actions you sow into a beautiful harvest of goodness. We are, each one of us, strangers and pilgrims in this world. In many ways, we are far from home. But that doesn't mean we need to feel lost or alone. Our beloved Father in heaven has given us the light of Christ. And deep within each one of us, a heavenly stirring urges us to turn our eyes, our eyes and hearts, to him as we make the pilgrimage back to our celestial home. This requires effort. You cannot get there without striving to learn of him, understanding his instructions, earnestly applying them, and putting one foot in front of the other. No, life is not a self-driving car. It is not an airplane on autopilot. You cannot just float in the waters of life and trust that the current will take you wherever you hope to be one day. Discipleship requires our willingness to swim upstream when needed. No one else is responsible for your personal journey. The Savior will help you and prepare the way before you, but the commitment to follow him and keep his commandments must come from you. That is your sole burden, your sole privilege. This is your great adventure. Please heed the call of your Savior. Follow him. The Lord has established the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to help you in this commitment to serve God and fellow men. Its purpose is to encourage, teach, lift, and inspire. This wonderful Church provides opportunities for you to exercise compassion, reach out to others, and renew and keep sacred covenants. It is designed to bless your life and improve your home, community, and nation. Come, join with us, and trust the Lord. Lend your talents to his wonderful work. Reach out, encourage, heal, and support all who desire to feel and heed the yearning for our supernal home. Let us join together in this glorious pilgrimage to heavenly climes. The gospel is a transcendent message of hope, happiness, and joy. 
It is the pathway that leads us home. As we embrace the gospel in faith and deed, each day and every hour, we will draw a little closer to our God. Our lives will be better, and the Lord will use us in remarkable ways to bless those around us and bring about His eternal purposes. Of this I testify and leave you my blessing in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The scriptures were written to bless and encourage us, and surely they do that. We do thank heaven for every chapter and verse we've ever been given. But have you noticed that every now and then a passage will appear that reminds us we're falling a little short? For example, the Sermon on the Mount begins with soothing, beautiful, gentle Beatitudes. But then in the verses that follow, we're told, among other things, not only not to kill, but also not even to be angry. We're told not only not to commit adultery, but also not to even have impure thoughts. To those who ask for it, we're to give our coat and then give our cloak also. We're to love our enemies, bless those who curse us, and do good to them that hate us. If that's your morning scripture study and after reading just that far, you're pretty certain you're not going to get good marks on your gospel report card, <laughs> then the final commandment in the chain is sure to finish the job. <laughs> Be ye therefore perfect, <laughs> even as your Father in heaven is perfect. With that concluding imperative, we want to go back to bed and pull the covers over our head. Such celestial goals seem beyond our reach. Yet surely the Lord would never give us a commandment He knew we could not keep. Let's see where this quandary takes us. Around the Church, I hear many struggle with this issue. I'm just not good enough. I fall so far short. I'll never measure up. I hear this from teenagers. I hear it from missionaries. I hear it from new converts. I hear it from lifelong members. One insightful Latter-day Saint, Sister Darla Isaacson, has observed that Satan has somehow managed to make covenants and commandments seem like curses and condemnations. For some, he has turned the ideals and inspiration of the gospel into self-loathing and misery-making. What I now say in no way denies or diminishes any commandment of God he has ever given us. I believe in his perfection, and I know we are his spiritual sons and daughters with divine potential to become as He is. I also know 
that as children of God, we should not demean or vilify ourselves, as if beating up on ourselves is somehow going to make us the person God wants us to become. No. With a willingness to repent and a desire for increased righteousness always in our hearts, I would hope we could pursue personal improvement in a way that doesn't include getting ulcers or anorexia, feeling depressed, or demolishing self-esteem. That is not what the Lord wants for primary children or anyone else who honestly sings, I'm trying to be like Jesus. To put this issue in context, may I remind all of us that we live in a fallen world, and for now we are a fallen people. We are in the telestial kingdom. That's spelled with a T, not a C, yet. As President Russell M. Nelson has taught, here in mortality, perfection is still pending. So I believe that Jesus did not intend his sermon on this subject to be a verbal hammer for battering us into our shortcomings. No, I believe he intended it to be a tribute to who and what God the Eternal Father is and what we can achieve with him in eternity. In any case, I am grateful to know that in spite of my perfections, at least God is perfect. That at least he is, for example, able to love his enemies. Because too often, due to the natural man and woman in us, you and I are sometimes that enemy. How grateful I am that at least God can bless those who despitefully use him. Because without wanting to or attending to, We all despitefully use him sometimes. I'm grateful that God is merciful and a peacemaker because I need mercy and the world needs peace. Of course, all we say of the Father's virtues, we also say of his only begotten Son who lived and died under the same perfection. I hasten to say that focusing on the Father's and the Son's achievements rather than our failures does not give us one ounce of justification for undisciplined lives or dumbing down our standards. No, from the beginning the gospel has been for the perfecting of the saints till we come unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. No, I am simply suggesting that at least one purpose of a scripture or a commandment can be to remind us just how magnificent the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ really is, inspiring in us greater love and admiration for him and a greater desire to be like him. Yea, come unto Christ, 
and be perfected in him, Moroni pleads. Love God with all your might, mind, and strength. Then, by his grace, you may be perfect in Christ. Our only hope for true perfection is in receiving it as a gift from heaven. We won't earn it. Thus, the grace of Christ offers us not only salvation from sorrow and sin and death, but also salvation from our own persistent self-criticism. Let me use one of the Savior's parables to say this in a little different way. A servant was in debt to his king for the amount of 10,000 talents. Hearing the servant's plea for patience and mercy, the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and forgave the debt. But then that same servant would not forgive a fellow servant who owed him 100 pence. On hearing this, the king lamented to the one he had forgiven Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? Now, there's some little difference of opinion among scholars regarding the monetary values mentioned here, and forgive the U.S. monetary reference. But to make the math easy, if the smaller unforgiven 100 pence debt were, say, in current times, then the 10,000 talent debt so freely forgiven would have approached $1 billion or more. As a personal debt, that is an astronomical number, totally beyond our comprehension. Nobody can shop that much. (laughs) For the purposes of this parable, It is supposed to be incomprehensible. It is supposed to be beyond our ability to grasp, to say nothing of beyond our ability to repay. That is because this isn't a story about two servants arguing in the New Testament. It's a story about us, the fallen human family, mortal debtors, transgressors, and prisoners all. Every one of us is a debtor. And the verdict was imprisonment for every one of us. And there we would have all remained were it not for the grace of a king who sets us free because he loves us and is moved with compassion toward us. Jesus uses an unfathomable measurement here because his atonement is as an unfathomable gift given at an incomprehensible cost. That, it seems to me, is at least part of the meaning behind Jesus' charge to be perfect. We may not be able to demonstrate yet the 10,000 talent perfection the Father and the Son have achieved. But it is not too much for them to ask us that we be a little more godlike 
in little things that we speak and act and love and forgive and repent and improve at least at a hundred pence level of perfection, which it is clearly within our ability to do. My brothers and sisters, except for Jesus, there have been no flawless performances on this earthly journey we're pursuing. So while in mortality, let's strive for steady improvement without obsessing over what behavioral scientists might call toxic perfectionism. We should avoid that latter excessive expectation of ourselves and of others, and I might add of those who are called to serve in the church, which for Latter-day Saints means everyone for we're all called to serve somewhere. In that regard, Leo Tolstoy wrote once of a priest who was criticized by one of his congregants for not living as resolutely as he should, the critic concluding that the principles the erring preacher taught must therefore also be erroneous. In response to that criticism, the priest says, Look at my life now and compare it to my former life. You will see that I am trying to live the truth I proclaim. Unable to live up to the high ideals he taught, the priest admits he has failed. But he cries, Attack me then, if you wish. I do this myself, but don't attack the path I follow. If I know the way home, but I'm walking along it drunkenly, is it any less the right way simply because I'm staggering from side to side? Do not gleefully shout, look at him. There he is, crawling into a bog. No, don't gloat. Give your help to anyone trying to walk the road back to God. Brothers and sisters, every one of us aspires to a more Christ-like life than we often succeed in living. If we admit that honestly and are trying to improve, we're not hypocrites. We're human. May we refuse to let our own mortal follies and the inevitable shortcomings of even the best men and women around us to make us cynical about the truths of the gospel, the truthfulness of the church, our hope for the future, or the possibility of godliness. If we persevere, then somewhere in eternity, our refinement will be finished and complete, which is the New Testament meaning of perfection. I testify of that grand destiny 
made available to us by the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself continued from grace to grace until in his immortality he received a perfect fullness of celestial glory. I testify that in this and every hour he is with nail-scarred hands extending to us that same grace, holding on to us and encouraging us, refusing to let us go until we are safely home in the embrace of heavenly parents. For such a perfect moment, I continue to strive, however clumsily. For such a perfect gift, I continue to give thanks, however inadequately. I do so in the very name of perfection itself, him who has never been clumsy or inadequate, but who loves all of us who are, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The day after Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000 in Galilee with only five barley loaves and two small fishes, he spoke to the people again in Capernaum. The Savior perceived that many were not so much interested in his teachings as in being fed again. Accordingly, he tried to convince them of the immensely greater value of that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Jesus declared, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I give for the life of the world." The Savior's intended meaning was totally lost on His hearers, who understood His statement only literally, recoiling at the thought. They wondered, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus pressed the point further, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. Ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He then expressed the profound meaning of his metaphor. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Still, his hearers did not grasp what Jesus was saying. And many, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walk no more with him.
To eat his flesh and drink his blood is a striking way of expressing how completely we must bring the Savior into our life, into our very being, that we may be one. How does this happen? First, we understand that in sacrificing his flesh and blood, Jesus atoned for our sins and overcame death, both physical and spiritual. Clearly, then, when we partake of his flesh and drink his blood, it is when we receive from him the power and blessings of his atonement. The doctrine of Christ expresses what we must do to receive atoning grace. It is to believe and have faith in Christ, to repent and be baptized, and to receive the Holy Ghost, and then cometh the remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. This is the gate, our access to the Savior's atoning grace and to the straight and narrow path leading to His kingdom. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward on that path, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, Behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. Behold, this is the doctrine of Christ, and the only true doctrine of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God without end. The symbolism of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is beautiful to contemplate. The bread and water represent the flesh and blood of Him who is the bread of life, and the living water, poignantly reminding us of the price He paid to redeem us. As the bread is broken, we remember the Savior's torn flesh. Elder Dallinates Oaks once observed that, quote, Because it is broken and torn, each piece of bread is unique, just as the individuals who partake of it are unique. We all have different sins to repent. We all have different needs to be strengthened through the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we remember in this ordinance." Unquote. As we drink the water, we think of the blood He shed in Gethsemane and on the cross and its sanctifying power, knowing that no unclean thing can enter into His kingdom. We resolve to be among those who have washed their garments in the Savior's blood because of their faith the repentance of all their sins, and their faithfulness unto the end. I have spoken of receiving the Savior's atoning grace to take away our sins and the stain of those sins in us. But figuratively eating His flesh and drinking His blood has a further meaning, and that is to internalize the qualities and character of Christ putting off the natural man and becoming saints through the Atonement of Christ the Lord. As we partake of the sacramental bread and water each week, we would do well to consider how fully and completely we must incorporate His character and the pattern of His sinless life into our life and being. Jesus could not have atoned for the sins of others unless He Himself was sinless. Since justice had no claim on Him, He could offer Himself in our place to satisfy justice and then extend mercy. As we remember and honor His atoning sacrifice, we should also contemplate His sinless life. 
This suggests the need for a mighty striving on our part. We cannot be content to remain as we are, but must be moving constantly toward the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like King Lamoni's father in the Book of Mormon, we must be willing to give away all our sins and focus on what the Lord expects of us, individually and together. Not long ago, a friend recounted to me an experience he had while serving as a mission president. He had undergone a surgery that required several weeks of recuperation. During his recovery, he devoted time to searching the scriptures. One afternoon, as he pondered the Savior's words in the 27th chapter of 3 Nephi, he drifted off to sleep. He then related, I fell into a dream in which I was given a vivid panoramic view of my life. I was shown my sins, poor choices, the times I had treated people with impatience, plus the omissions of good things I should have done or said. A comprehensive review of my life was shown to me in just a few minutes, but it seemed much longer. I awoke startled and instantly dropped to my knees beside the bed and began to pray, to plead for forgiveness, pouring out the feelings of my heart like I had never done previously. Prior to the dream, I didn't know that I had such great need to repent. My faults and weaknesses suddenly became so plainly clear to me that the gap between the person I was and the holiness and goodness of God seemed like millions of miles. In my prayer that late afternoon, I expressed my deepest gratitude to Heavenly Father and to the Savior with my whole heart for what they had done for me and for the relationships I treasured with my wife and children. While on my knees, I also felt God's love and mercy that was so palpable despite my feeling so unworthy. I can say I haven't been the same since that day. My heart changed. What followed is that I developed more empathy toward others with a greater capacity to love, coupled with a sense of urgency to preach the gospel. I could relate to the messages of faith, hope, and the gift of repentance found in the Book of Mormon as never before. It's important to recognize that this vivid revelation of his sins and shortcomings to this good man did not discourage or lead him to despair. Yes, he, he felt shock and remorse. He felt keenly his need to repent. He had been humbled, yet he felt gratitude, peace, and hope—real hope—because of Jesus Christ, the living bread which came down from heaven. My friend spoke of the gap he perceived in his dream between his life and the holiness of God. Holiness is the right word. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ means to pursue holiness. God commands, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Enoch counseled us, Teach it unto your children that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God for no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in His presence. 
For in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name, and the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ. As a boy, I wondered why, in the New Testament, Jesus is often referred to, and even refers to himself, as the Son of Man, when he's really the Son of God. But Enoch's statement makes it clear that these references are actually a recognition of his divinity and holiness. He is the Son of Man of holiness, God the Father. If we yearn to dwell in Christ and have Him dwell in us, then holiness is what we seek, both body and spirit. We seek it in the temple, whereon is inscribed holiness to the Lord. We seek it in our marriages, families, homes. We seek it each week as we delight in the Lord's holy day. We seek it even in the details of our living daily—speech, our dress, our thoughts. As President Thomas S. Monson has stated, we are the product of all we read, all we view, all we hear, all we think. We seek holiness as we take up our cross daily. Sister Carol F. McConkie has observed, quote, We recognize the multitude of tests, temptations, and tribulations that could pull us away from all that is virtuous and praiseworthy before God. But our mortal experiences offer us the opportunity to choose holiness. Most often it is the sacrifices we make to keep our covenants that sanctify us and make us holy." And to the sacrifices we make, I would add, the service we give. We know that when we are in the service of our fellow beings, we are only in the service of our God. And the Lord reminds us that such service is central to His life and character. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. President Marion G. Romney wisely explained, Service is not something we endure on this earth so that we can earn the right to live in the celestial kingdom. Service is the very fiber of which an exalted life in the celestial kingdom is made. Zechariah prophesied that in the day of the Lord's millennial reign, even the bells on the horses would bear the inscription, Holiness unto the Lord. In that spirit, the pioneer saints in these valleys affixed that reminder, Holiness to the Lord, on seemingly common or mundane things as well as those more directly associated with religious practice. It was inscribed on sacrament cups and plates and printed on certificates of ordination of seventies and on a Relief Society banner. Holiness to the Lord also appeared over the display windows of Zion's Cooperative Mercantile Institution the ZCMI department store. It was found on the head of a hammer and on a drum. Holiness to the Lord was cast on the metal doorknobs of President Brigham Young's home. These references to holiness in seemingly unusual or unexpected places may seem incongruous but they suggest just how pervasive and constant our focus on holiness needs to be. 
Partaking of the Savior's flesh and drinking His blood means to put out of our lives anything inconsistent with a Christ-like character and to make His attributes our own. This is the larger meaning of repentance, not only turning away from past sin, but a turning of the heart and will to God going forward. As happened with my friend in his revelatory dream, God will show us our flaws and failings, but He'll also help us turn weakness into strength. If we sincerely ask, What lack I yet? He will not leave us to guess, but in love He'll answer for the sake of our happiness and He'll give us hope. It is a consuming endeavor, and it would be terribly daunting if in our striving for holiness we were alone. The glorious truth is we're not alone. We have the love of God, the grace of Christ, the comfort and guidance of the Holy Spirit, and the fellowship and encouragement of fellow saints in the body of Christ. Let us not be content with where we are, but neither let us be discouraged. As a simple but thoughtful hymn urges us, Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like Him thou shalt be, thy friends in thy conduct His likeness shall see. I bear testimony of Jesus Christ, the living bread which came down from heaven, and that whoso eateth his flesh and drinketh his blood hath eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. To Moses, God declared, I have a work for thee. Have you ever wondered if Heavenly Father has a work for you? Are there important things He's prepared you and specifically you to accomplish? I testify the answer is yes. Consider Girish Gamire, who was born and raised in the country of Nepal. As a teenager, he studied in China, where a classmate introduced him to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eventually, Girish came to Brigham Young University for graduate work and met his future wife. They settled in the Salt Lake Valley and adopted two children from Nepal. Years later, when more than 1,500 refugees from camps in Nepal were relocated to Utah, Girish felt inspired to help. With native language fluency and cultural understanding, Girish served as an interpreter, teacher, and mentor. After resettling in the community, some of the Nepali refugees demonstrated interest in the gospel. A Nepali-speaking branch was organized, and Girish later served as its branch president. He was also instrumental in translating the Book of Mormon into Nepali. Can you see how Heavenly Father prepared and is using Girish? Brothers and sisters, God has important work for each of us. Speaking to sisters but teaching truths that apply to all, President Spencer W. Kimball taught, Before we came to earth, we were given certain assignments. While we do not now remember the particulars, this does not alter the glorious reality of what we once agreed to. What an ennobling truth! Our Heavenly Father has specific and significant things for you and me to accomplish. These divine assignments are not reserved for a privileged few, but are for all of us, regardless of gender, age, race, nationality, income level, social status, or Church calling. Every one of us has a meaningful role to play in furthering God's work. Some of us question whether Heavenly Father can use us to make important contributions. But remember, He has always used ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. We are agents, and the power is in us to bring to pass much righteousness.
President Russell M. Nelson explained, The Lord has more in mind for you than you have in mind for yourself. You've been reserved and preserved for this time and place. The Lord needs you to change the world. As you accept and follow His will for you, you will find yourself accomplishing the impossible. So how do we come to understand and perform the work God intends for us? Let me share four principles that will help. First, focus on others. We can follow Christ who went about doing good. After returning from a full-time mission, I missed the daily purpose I'd enjoyed. Clearly, I needed to keep my covenants, get an education, start a family, and earn a living. But I wondered if there was something more or even special that the Lord wanted me to do. After pondering for several months, I came across this verse. If you desire, you shall be the means of doing much good in this generation. The Spirit helped me understand that the primary purpose of divine assignments is to bless others and to do much good. We can approach decision points in our lives like what to study, what to do for work, or where to live in the context of helping others. One family moved to a new city. Instead of finding a home in an affluent neighborhood, they felt impressed to locate to an area with considerable social and economic needs. Over the years, the Lord has worked through them to support many individuals and to build up their ward and stake. A medical professional maintained a typical practice but felt guided to set aside one day each week to provide free care to individuals with no health insurance. Because of this man's and his wife's willingness to bless others, the Lord provided a way for them to support hundreds of patients in need while also raising their large family. Second, discover and develop spiritual gifts. Heavenly Father gave us these gifts to help us identify, perform, and enjoy the work He has for us. Some of us wonder, do I have any gifts? Again, the answer is yes. To every man and woman is given a gift by the Spirit of God that all may be profited thereby. A number of spiritual gifts are documented in Scripture, but there are many others. Some might include having compassion, expressing hope, relating well with people, organizing effectively, speaking or writing persuasively, teaching clearly, and working hard. So how do we come to know our gifts? We can reference our patriarchal blessing, ask those who know us best, and personally identify what we're naturally good at and enjoy. Most important, we can ask God. He knows our gifts since He gave them to us. As we discover our gifts, we have a responsibility to develop them. Even Jesus Christ received not of the fullness at first, but developed from grace to grace. One young man produced illustrations to promote religious values. My favorite is a portrait of the Savior a copy of which hangs in our home. This brother developed and used his artistic gifts. Working through him, Heavenly Father has inspired others to improve their discipleship. Sometimes we feel that we don't have any particularly important gifts. One day, a discouraged sister pleaded, Lord, what is my personal ministry? He answered, Notice others. It was a spiritual gift. Since then, she has found joy in noticing those who are regularly forgotten and God has worked through her to bless many. While some spiritual gifts may not be prominent by the world's standards, they are essential to God and His work. Third, make use of adversity. Our trials help us discover and prepare for the work Heavenly Father has for us. Alma explained, After much tribulation, the Lord made me an instrument in His hands. Like the Savior, whose atoning sacrifice enables Him to succor us, We can use knowledge gained from difficult experiences to lift, strengthen, and bless others. 
After a successful human resources executive was laid off, he read his patriarchal blessing and felt inspired to start a company to help other professionals find employment. He even helped me find work when our family returned from serving a mission. The Lord used his trial as a stepping stone to bless others while providing him with a more meaningful career. A young couple experienced a stillborn birth. With broken hearts, they decided to honor their daughter by providing counseling and material support to parents enduring similar situations. The Lord has worked through this couple because of their specialized empathy developed through adversity. And fourth, rely on God. When we ask Him in faith with real intent, He will reveal our divine assignments to us. Once discovered, He will help us fulfill those assignments. All things are present before His eyes, and at the right times, He will open the doors necessary for us. He even sent His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can depend on Him for, natural, for strength beyond our natural abilities. One brother, concerned with local government decisions, felt impressed to run for public office. Despite a daunting campaign process, he exercised faith and gathered the resources to run. Ultimately, he did not win, but, the felt the Lord, but he felt the Lord gave him guidance and strength to raise issues important to the community. A single mother raising children with developmental disabilities questioned whether she could adequately meet her family's needs. Though it's been difficult, she feels strengthened by the Lord to fulfill her most important mission successfully. At the same time God helps us fulfill divine assignments, the adversary works to distract and dissuade us from a life of meaning. Sin is perhaps our greatest stumbling block, dulling our sensitivity to the Holy Ghost and restricting our access to spiritual power. To perform the work Heavenly Father has for us, we must strive to be clean. Are we living in such a way that God can work through us? Satan also seeks to distract us with less important matters. The Lord warned an early church leader, Your mind has been on the things of the earth more than on the things of me and the ministry whereunto you have been called. Are we so preoccupied with worldly things that we're diverted from our divine assignments? In addition, Satan discourages us with feelings of inadequacy. He makes our work appear too difficult or intimidating. However, we can trust God. He loves us. He wants us to succeed. He doth go before us. He will be with us. He will not fail us. Satan may also coax us to view our work as less valuable than the work assigned to others. But every assignment from God is important, and we will find fulfillment as we glory in that which the Lord hath commanded us. As God works through us, the adversary may tempt us to take credit for any accomplishments. However, we can emulate the Savior's humility by deflecting personal praise and glorifying the Father. When a reporter tried to recognize Mother Teresa for her life's mission to help the poor, she retorted, It's God's work. I'm like a pencil in his hand. He does the thinking. He does the writing. The pencil has nothing to do with it. The pencil has only to be allowed to be used. My brothers and sisters, I invite each of us to yield ourselves unto God as instruments of righteousness. Yielding ourselves involves letting him know we want to be of use, seeking his direction, and accessing his strength. As always, we can look to Jesus Christ, our perfect example. In the pre-earth life, Heavenly Father asked, Whom shall I send? And Jesus answered, Here am I, send me. Jesus Christ accepted, prepared for, and performed his preordained role as our Savior and Redeemer. He did the Father's will and completed his divine assignments. As we follow Christ's example and yield ourselves to God, I testify that he will also use us to further his work and to bless others.
In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. As is evident in our family proclamation, members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are blessed with unique doctrine and different ways of viewing the world. We participate and even excel in many worldly activities, but on some subjects we forego participation as we seek to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ and His Apostles, ancient and modern. In a parable, Jesus described those who heareth the word but become unfruitful when that word is choked by the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Later, Jesus corrected Peter for not savoring the things that be of God, but those that be of man, declaring, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In his final teachings, he told his apostles, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, the world hateth you. Similarly, the writings of Jesus' original apostles frequently use the image of the world to represent opposition to gospel teachings. Be not conformed to this world, the Apostle Paul taught, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And beware, he warned, lest any man spoil you after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The Apostle James taught that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The Book of Mormon often uses this image of the opposition of the world. Nephi prophesied the ultimate destruction of those who are built up to become popular in the eyes of the world and those who seek the things of the world. Alma condemned those who were puffed up with the vain things of the world. Lehi's dream shows that those who seek to follow the iron rod, the word of God, will encounter opposition of the world. The occupants of the great and spacious building Lehi saw were mocking and pointing the finger of scorn. In his vision interpreting this dream, Nephi learned that this ridicule and opposition came from the multitudes of the earth, the world, and the wisdom thereof, the pride of the world. What is the meaning of these scriptural cautions and commandments not to be of the world, or the modern commandment to forsake the world? President Thomas S. Monson summarized these teachings. Quote, we must be vigilant in a world which has moved so far from that which is spiritual. It is essential that we reject anything that does not conform to our standards, refusing in the process to surrender that which we desire most, eternal life in the kingdom of God. End of quote. God created this earth according to His plan to provide His spirit children a place to experience mortality 
as a necessary step toward the glories he desires for all his children. While there are various kingdoms and glories, our Heavenly Father's ultimate desire for his children is what President Monson called eternal life in the kingdom of God, which is exaltation in families. This is more than salvation. President Russell M. Nelson has reminded us, quote, in God's eternal plan, salvation is an individual matter, but exaltation is a family matter. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ and the inspired family proclamation, which I will discuss later, are essential teachings to guide mortal preparation for exaltation. Even as we must live with the marriage laws and other traditions of a declining world, those who strive for exaltation must make personal choices in family life according to the Lord's way whenever that differs from the world's way. In this mortal life, we have no memory of what preceded our birth, and we now experience opposition. We grow and mature spiritually by choosing to obey God's commandments in a succession of right choices. These include covenants and ordinances and repentance when our choices are wrong. In contrast, if we lack faith in God's plan and are disobedient to or deliberately refrain from its required actions, we forego that growth and maturity. The Book of Mormon teaches this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Latter-day Saints who understand God's plan of salvation have a unique worldview that helps them see the reason for God's commandments, the unchangeable nature of His required ordinances, and the fundamental role of our Savior Jesus Christ. Our Savior's Atonement reclaims us from death and, subject to our repentance, saves us from sin. With that worldview, Latter-day Saints have distinctive priorities and practices and are blessed with the strength to endure the frustrations and pains of mortal life. Inevitably, the actions of those who try to follow God's plan of salvation can cause misunderstanding or even conflict with family members or friends who do not believe its principles. Such conflict is always so. Every generation that has sought to follow God's plan has had challenges. Anciently, the prophet Isaiah gave strength to the Israelites, whom he called, Ye that know righteousness, in whose heart is my law. To them he said, Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. But whatever the cause of conflict with those who do not understand or believe God's plan, those who do understand are always commanded to choose the Lord's way instead of the world's way. The gospel plan each family should follow to prepare for eternal life and exaltation 
is outlined in the Church's 1995 proclamation, The Family, a Proclamation to the World. Its declarations are, of course, visibly different from some current laws, practices, and advocacy of the world in which we live. In our day, the differences most evident are cohabitation without marriage, same-sex marriage, and the raising of children in such relationships. Those who do not believe in or aspire to exaltation and are most persuaded by the ways of the world consider this family proclamation as just a statement of policy that should be changed. In contrast, Latter-day Saints affirm that the family proclamation defines the nature of family relationships where the most important part of our eternal development can occur. We have witnessed a rapid and increasing public acceptance of cohabitation without marriage and same-sex marriage. The corresponding media advocacy, education, and even occupational requirements pose difficult challenges for Latter-day Saints. We must try to balance the competing demands of following the gospel law in our personal lives and teachings even as we seek to show love for all. In doing so, we sometimes face, but need not fear, what Isaiah called the reproach of men. Converted Latter-day Saints believe that the family proclamation issued nearly a quarter century ago and now translated into scores of languages is the Lord's re-emphasis of the gospel truths we need to sustain us through current challenges to the family. Two examples are same-sex marriage and cohabitation without marriage. Just 18 years after the Family Proclamation, the United States Supreme Court authorized same-sex marriage, overturning thousands of years of marriage being limited to a man and a woman. The shocking percentage of United States children born to a mother not married to the father, came more gradually—5% in 1960, 32% in 1995, and now more than 40 percent. The Family Proclamation begins by declaring that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. It also affirms that gender is an essential characteristic of individual, premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. It further declares that God has commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. The proclamation affirms the continuing duty of husband and wife to multiply and replenish the earth and their solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. It solemnly warns against the abuse of spouse or offspring, and it affirms that happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, it calls for the promotion 
of official measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family as the fundamental unit of society. In 1995, a president of the Church and 14 other apostles of the Lord issued these important doctrinal statements. As one of only seven of those apostles still living, I feel obliged to share what led to the Family Proclamation for the information of all who consider it. The inspiration identifying the need for a proclamation on the family came to the leadership of the Church over 23 years ago. It was a surprise to some who thought the doctrinal truths about marriage and the family were well understood without reinstatement. Nevertheless, we felt the confirmation and we went to work. Subjects were identified and discussed by members of the Quorum of the Twelve for nearly a year. Language was proposed, reviewed, and revised. Prayerfully, we continually pleaded with the Lord for His inspiration on what we should say and how we should say it. We all learned line upon line, precept upon precept, as the Lord has promised. During this revelatory process, a proposed text was presented to the First Presidency who oversee and promulgate Church teachings and doctrine. After the Presidency made further changes, the Proclamation on the Family was announced by the President of the Church, Gordon B. Hinckley. In the women's meeting of September 23, 1995, he introduced the Proclamation with these words. With so much of sophistry that is passed off as truth, with so much of deception concerning standards and values, with so much of allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world, we have felt to warn and forewarn." End of quote. I testify that the proclamation on the family is a statement of eternal truth, the will of the Lord for His children who seek eternal life. It has been the basis of Church teaching and practice for the last 22 years and will continue so for the future. Consider it as such, live by it, and you will be blessed as you press forward toward eternal life. Forty years ago, President Ezra Taft Benson taught that every generation has its tests and its chance to stand and prove itself. I believe our attitude toward and use of the Family Proclamation is one of those tests for this generation. I pray for all Latter-day Saints to stand firm in that test. I close with President Gordon B. Hinckley's teachings uttered two years after the Family Proclamation was announced. He said, quote, I see a wonderful future in a very uncertain world. If we will cling to our values, if we will build on our inheritance, if we will walk in obedience before the Lord, if we will simply live the gospel, we will be blessed in a magnificent and wonderful way. We will be looked upon as a peculiar people who have found the key to a peculiar happiness." End of quote. I testify of the truth and eternal importance of the Family Proclamation revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ to His Apostles for the exaltation of the children of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
In recent days, we have witnessed a large number of natural disasters in Mexico, the United States, Asia, the Caribbean, and Africa. It has brought out the best in people, as thousands have stepped in to help those who are in danger or need and who have suffered loss. I have been thrilled to see young women in Texas and Florida who, along with many others, have donned the Yellow Helping Hands t-shirts and are helping clear houses of debris following the recent hurricanes. Many thousands more would gladly go to the centers of need were it not for distance. Instead, you have offered generous donations to alleviate suffering. Your generosity and compassion are inspiring and Christ-like. Today, I want to mention an aspect of service that I feel is important for all, no matter where we are located. It is an aspect of service for all of us who have watched news of recent events and have felt helpless to know what to do. The answer might actually be right before us. The Savior taught, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. President Thomas S. Monson said of this scripture, I believe the Savior is telling us that unless we lose ourselves in service to others, there is little purpose to our own lives. Those who live only for themselves eventually shrivel up and figuratively lose their lives, while those who lose themselves in service to others grow and flourish and, in effect, save their lives." We live in a culture where, more and more, we are focused on the small little screen in our hands than we are on the people around us. We have substituted texting and tweeting for actually looking someone in the eye and smiling, or even rarer, having a face-to-face conversation. We are often more concerned with how many followers and likes we have than putting an arm around a friend and showing love, concern, and tangible interest. As amazing as modern technology can be for spreading the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and helping us stay connected to family and friends, if we are not vigilant in how we use our personal devices, we too can begin to turn inward and forget that the essence of living the gospel is service. I have tremendous love and faith in those of you who are in your teen and young adult years. I have seen and felt your desires to serve and make a difference in the world. I believe that most members consider service to be at the heart of their covenants and discipleship. But I also think it's sometimes easy to miss some of the greatest opportunities to serve others because we are distracted or because we are looking for ambitious ways to change the world, and we don't see that some of the most significant needs we can meet are within our own families, among our friends, in our wards, and in our communities. We are touched when we see the suffering and great needs of those halfway around the world, but we may fail to see there is a person who needs our friendship sitting right next to us in class. Sister Linda K. Burton told the story of a Stake Relief Society president who, working with others, collected quilts for people in need during the 1990s. She and her daughter drove a truck filled with those quilts from London to Kosovo. On her journey home, she received an unmistakable spiritual impression that sank deep into her heart. The impression was this, What you have done is a very good thing. Now go home, 
walk across the street, and serve your neighbor. What good does it do to save the world if we neglect the needs of those closest to us and those whom we love the most? How much value is there in fixing the world if the people around us are falling apart and we don't notice? Heavenly Father may have placed those who need us closest to us, knowing that we are best suited to meet their needs. Everyone can find ways to offer Christ-like service. My counselor sister, Carol F. McConkie, recently told me about her 10-year-old granddaughter, Sarah, who, when she realized that her mother was ill, decided on her own to be of help. She got her little sister up, helped her dress, brush her teeth, fix her hair, and eat breakfast so her mother could rest. She quietly performed this simple act of service without being asked because she saw a need and desired to help. Not only did Sarah bless her mother, but I am sure that she also felt joy in knowing she had lightened the burden of someone she loved and along the way strengthened her relationship with her sister. President James E. Faust said, Serving others can begin at almost any age. It need not be on a grand scale, and it is noblest within the family. Do you children realize how much it means to your parents and family members when you look for ways to serve at home. For those in your teen years, strengthening and serving your family members should be among your top priorities as you look for ways to change the world. Showing kindness and concern for your siblings and parents helps create an atmosphere of unity and invites the Spirit into the home. Changing the world begins with strengthening your own family. Another area of focus for our service can be in our ward families. Occasionally, our children would ask us the question, Why do I have to go to Mutual? I just don't get very much out of it. If I was having a good parenting moment, I would reply, What makes you think you go to Mutual because of what you get out of it? My young friends, I can guarantee that there will always be someone at every Church meeting you attend who is lonely who is going through challenges and needs a friend, or who feels like he or she doesn't belong. You have something important to contribute to every meeting or activity, and the Lord desires for you to look around at your peers and then minister as He would. Elder D. Todd Christofferson has taught, A major reason the Lord has a Church is to create a community of saints that will sustain one another in the straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life. He goes on to say, This religion is not concerned only with self. Rather, we are all called to serve. We are the eyes, hands, head, feet, and other members of the body of Christ. It is true that we attend our weekly Church meetings to participate in ordinances, learn doctrine, and be inspired. But another very important reason for attending is that, as a ward family and as disciples of the Savior Jesus Christ, we watch out for one another, encourage one another, and find ways to serve and strengthen each other. We are not just receivers and takers of what is offered at Church. We are needed to be givers and suppliers. Young women and young men, Next time you were at Mutual, instead of picking up your phone to see what your friends are doing, stop, look around, and ask yourself, 
Who needs me today? You may be the key to reaching out and touching the life of a peer or to giving encouragement to a friend who is quietly struggling. Ask your Heavenly Father to show you those around you who need your help and inspire you on how to best serve them. Remember that the Savior most often ministered to one person at a time. Our grandson, Ethan, is 17. I was touched this summer when he told me that, inspired by his mother's example, he prays each day to have an opportunity to serve someone. As we spent time with his family, I observed how Ethan treats his brother and sisters with patience, love, and kindness and is helpful to his parents and looks for ways to reach out to others. I am impressed with how aware he is of the people around him and of his desire to serve them. He is an example to me. Doing as Ethan does, inviting the Lord to help us find ways to serve, will allow the Spirit to open our eyes to see the needs around us, to see the one who needs us that day, and to know how to minister to him or her. In addition to serving your family and your ward members, look for opportunities to serve in your neighborhood and community. While at times we are called upon to help after a major disaster, on a day-to-day basis we are encouraged to look for opportunities in our own areas to lift and help those in need. I was recently instructed by an area president serving in a country which has many temporal challenges that the best way to help those in needs in other parts of the world is to pay a generous fast offering, contribute to the Church's humanitarian aid fund, and look for ways to serve those in your own community wherever you live. Just imagine how the world would be blessed if everyone followed this counsel. Brothers and sisters, and especially the youth, as you strive to become more like the Savior Jesus Christ and live your covenants, you will continue to be blessed with desires to relieve suffering and to help those who are less fortunate. Remember that some of the greatest needs may be those right in front of you. Begin your service in your own homes and within your own families. These are the relationships that can be eternal. Even if, and maybe especially if, your family situation is less than perfect, you can find ways to serve lift, and strengthen. Begin where you are, love them as they are, and prepare for the family you want to have in the future. Pray for help in recognizing those in your ward families who need love and encouragement. Instead of attending Church with the question of, What am I going to get out of this meeting? Ask, Who needs me today? What do I have to contribute? As you bless your own families and ward members, Look for ways to bless those in your local communities. Whether you have time for extensive service or can give only a few hours a month, your efforts will bless lives and will also bless you in ways you cannot begin to imagine. President Spencer W. Kimball taught, God does notice us and He watches over us, but it is usually through another person that He meets our needs. May we each recognize the privilege and blessing it is to participate in accomplishing the work of our Heavenly Father as we meet the needs of His children. Is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.